Welcome to the Laravel IO podcast. My name is Sean McCool. I'm here with Taylor Otwell, Jeffrey Way, and uh, Chris Fidal is actually in some kind of tropical island paradise today. So we have Mitchell von Weingarde. Hello. Thanks, everybody, for coming on. We have a lot of crazy stuff to talk about today. Craziness. But maybe first we talk uh, just briefly about kind of Laracon in New York City and how, how that went. Yeah, I think it went pretty well. Uh, we had lots of good feedback, and um, a real hot topic about Laracon is when are the videos coming out, which... Um, it is a hot topic, it, yes. Yeah, it does take a while to get those ready. There's like 500 gigs of video, and as Mitchell can probably attest to, it does take a little while to get those videos ready. But uh, they are coming. They will be available for free, I assume, like on YouTube or something similar. So This happens with every conference. People think you just... Do the conference and then they're up the next day. And it's like, no, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. work that way. Yeah, I think yeah. that maybe for me, I, I definitely want to see myself give my talk because I have no idea how it like actually went. So uh, if I can do that, that's great. But I don't, I don't feel like rushing people. I still do want to query about the status sometimes. So, so forgive me. <laughs> uh, other than that, I think um, you know all the talks. I think were really, really good, and everyone um, seemed to enjoy it. Uh, I know I really enjoyed pretty much every talk was was interesting and and informative and um in the case of uh, Igor's uh, you know kind of brain bending but it was fun I really liked oh, it Oh that was insane Yeah I felt very stupid after that talk Yeah I'm not a smart person I've I've learned <laughs> Yeah Igor actually got me reading that Godel Escher Bach book I've kind of worked yeah. my way through it but it's like such a huge book it's hard to travel with cuz it weighs you down at the <laughs> yeah. 10 minutes, I had to stop following. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a cool talk. The lightning talk was awesome. I really liked that, too. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I think that should be a tradition. It's really nice <laughs> yeah. to kind of break it up a little bit. Because it is a little hard just every talk paying attention for 45 minutes to an hour. So it's nice mm-hmm. if there's little breaks, little uh, lightning talks. It helps. Right. There's like an art to it all. and. You know, I, I think that I'm I'm trying to figure out kind of how to handle Laracon EU based on kind of what I experienced in New York City. So we're definitely having lightning talks. That was kind of planned for a long time. And we're trying to have workshops, but uh, that can be a little bit more difficult to plan. Uh, but we have a lot of interesting, uh, like, announcements that are going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have people right now voting on which T-shirt style they want on Twitter. So that's fun. Yeah, one thing I found that's difficult with conferences is... <clears throat> Nowadays, everything is so Googleable, so to say, where, you know, it's hard to present educational material that wasn't already like right at your fingertips. And that's always been a challenge for me to kind of pick talks or or kind of evaluate the whole conference model, really, about, you know, what talks do we pick so that people feel like they're learning something that they didn't already know or couldn't easily find out, you know, within seconds. Yeah, I really identify with this. Uh, when choosing talks, there there are so many criteria, and you always have to be thinking about okay, there's going to be a very diverse crowd, and you don't you have to kind of target everybody a little bit, um, which is difficult. But I think that there's a lot of value that the speakers can provide if if you kind of approach it right. Like usually, perspective for me is more important than some specific things. So I can read a lot on the internet about how to do something like implementing something or, you know, various object oriented concepts or anything like that. But when it comes to getting perspective from like an established expert, that is to me like something that you can't just absorb so easily. 
Yeah, there are some topics that are just they're just easier to explain in person, I guess, or they're easier to um, kind of present live with code examples that you can explain and point point at things. And um, some talks are just better suited for that as well than typing up in a blog that's kind of hard to digest. It's always difficult figuring out, like, how many code examples should there be? Like, my presentation was pretty code heavy. I was doing so many different topics. And, like, Sean, I know you're not a huge fan of that. Personally, I am. Like, in my experiences, so many presentations, they're really great on theory, but then they never give you any actual application. So you're like, all right, well, that's a cool idea, but I have no idea where to start with this because there was no code in the entire presentation. Yeah. So it's always tough to kind of find, like, you want some code, but obviously you don't want to give people just 50 lines of code in every slide. Our brains just can't handle it, you know. We we check out eventually. So yeah, that's there's been a, tough for me. There's a fine line there. And, and I'm not against code because obviously I had code in my talk, but I think that you have to... Um, well, I, I guess I've just been traumatized by the amount of talks I've sat through and kind of my brain just went elsewhere and I couldn't continue to focus on the projector because it was just too, too cody. A couple of months I did a, I did a, a talk at Groningen PHP here in the Netherlands and it was a talk about Laravel for 4.4 beginners and it was just pretty much all code examples. Uh, for me, it was uh, it was a very good learning experience on how to not give a talk. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Code examples are definitely good to uh, trying to make your point, but uh, overdoing them is, yeah, very easily. But I, I to totally agree with you that you have these abstract concepts that you want to communicate, but it doesn't really mean anything to somebody until they can see it in a form that you know they, they would be implementing it with. So, so that's where I kind of brought code examples into my talk. And I, I, again, I'm not really against code examples. I just, you, to me, it's like I have to fight them. I have to fight them to find that right balance. I had a really good time at Laracon, and I thought it was really great being in New York City because I've never been. So we kind of got used to how the city's laid out, and that was really cool. But I thought that the conference went really well in that, like Taylor said, I thought that the talks like all went over really well. And you know, a lot of times in conferences, you, you don't know what you're going to get. But I think there was a good job cur curating it all, and the organization was really solid. And it was really great talking to different people, like, for example, Igor, and getting a perspective on different things um, that, you know, aren't necessarily Laravel or even PHP related, but like his talk was on abstract machines. And, you know, that definitely gave me something to think about, something to chew on. Yeah, conferences for me are very social. And like, that's always kind of the, the most fun for me. It's just to meet everyone and talk about what they're working on, what they're using Laravel for, and just generally get, you know, a lot of different perspectives on, uh, you know, development and Laravel in particular and, and how they approach development. It's always kind of fun to hear about people's workflow and kind of what they're doing and working on. One of the things I really liked was the GP in the, in the lounge area over there because, um, if, if you didn't want to follow the talk but didn't want to sit in the, in the concert area or whatever, you just, uh, have your laptop and just sit, sit on the couch and, uh, watch the presentation as well. So I know that was some really added value for me. I don't know. I'd always imagine it's very difficult. And, and Sean, you and I talked about this behind the scenes a couple of weeks ago, figuring out, for example, with a Laracon, how many of the talks should actually be focused on Laravel versus just the general PHP community or or even things that aren't related to that. So I'm always curious because I always I have this idea that the people who organize it sometimes maybe have a different agenda than the people who buy the tickets. And I, I've seen it myself when I've helped organize conferences that can be very tough to 
to handle because, of course, we want to learn various things. But then, for example, the newcomers to Laravel, they're really there specifically to learn more about Laravel. So if they find that half of the talks don't necessarily relate to Laravel, I wonder if that's a struggle for them. Did you guys have trouble with that on your when you were organizing? We did a little bit. Um, I mean, we had – I think we had a couple people that felt like um, – I think we had one person that felt like it was too um, intense, like the topics were too over their head. And I think we had one other person that felt like it was too um, not focused on Laravel, like it was too broad of a conference. And, I mean – yeah, I'm sorry, people, you know, some people are going to feel that way when you have a crowd of 300, you know, you're going to have a few people that are not happy with the way the conference turned out or it's not what they expected. And that is always tough to hear, you know, even if it is a minority, you know, just a, a handful of people, it always is kind of tough to hear if people don't get what they expected. But it is so hard to pick talks to appeal to everyone, which is kind of why it is so broad in a way. Right. Um, to try to meet everyone's expectations just a little bit. So maybe there's just like a couple talks that really hit home with you. And there's going to be a couple that you don't really connect with at all or you're not interested in. And usually that's just how conferences go. That's how every conference I've been to, that's just how it works. You know, you're just going to, the talks are going to be hit and miss for you. And usually like the, so that's why I think a lot of people find the social time is kind of the highlight because you're not going to connect with every talk. It's just not going to happen usually um, unless you're at a very focused conference in a field you're very interested in. So um, we do, that's why we try to be kind of broad. And that's also why we try to have kind of generous break times and, and social times is to allow kind of the just the, the human interaction to take place and, and networking or whatever. So right. I've had people contact me on Twitter and say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of a beginner and I want to come to Laracon are there going to be talks for me? And that's something that kind of we really took away from not just, you know, Laracon EU last year, but uh, Laracon this year when we heard some of the feedback that some people, you know, did find some of the topics a little bit advanced. We wanted to really make sure that we're providing that kind of, um, you know, kind of not necessarily like beginner, but like the information that somebody new to Laravel might want to have when getting into Laravel. If, 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 transitioning into the framework is going to be, you know, difficult. What can we help do to help ease the transition and stuff like that? So we have uh, a, quite a few speakers actually confirmed now, but we're going to release an announcement video soon, so I don't want to spoil anything. But we definitely are focusing on uh, very Laravel-related topics, as well as other things that are um, topical, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of things that's happening in the PHP community and in the Laravel community, and we are kind of focused on what's trending. Uh, I think that's relevant to a lot of people, which is kind of what trending means. So, yeah, we have a lot of talks on the, you know, the kind of using the framework and kind of what somebody might consider beginner level talks, but we're also talking about application architecture and, and other things that are relevant to us. So when, when we design this conference, we're looking at, okay, who is buying the tickets and how can we give them, you know, value. So it's always a balance, but I, I think that we're, we're doing an okay job in, in finding a way to serve, serve the different demographics, I guess. So 
one topic that we discussed while at Laracon in New York City with a, a number of people is that there is sometimes a, uh, an idea in the greater PHP community that the Laravel community is kind of drinking this Ruby on Rails Kool-Aid. It's kind of like the same thing. Do you guys have any ideas or reactions to this idea that Laravel is kind of like the Ruby on Rails for PHP and how that's considered a bad thing? I'd be curious to know from Taylor, how much was Rails an influence on Laravel when you were developing it? Maybe to mm, start. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a somewhat of a large influence, I would say, just in general. I think they're they're most similar philosophically, obviously, rather than the way they work or the way they're implemented. So, like... Laravel is similar to Rails in the sense that they both kind of both kind of have a focus on um, productivity or like rapid development and um, kind of developer quote happiness is how Rails puts it. Um, like just going to the Ruby on Rails website, I mean that's kind of front and center, you know, on a web development that doesn't hurt is the tagline. So in a lot of ways that was kind of. Um, um, kind of a philosophical, you know, similarity between the two frameworks. And, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a big inspiration, you know, and you can see that even in various components of Laravel, like Eloquent is quite similar to Active Record. And, um, but that's Rails is not the only framework that was inspiration. You know, Blade is very similar to Razor from ASP.net and, um, other things are very similar to Sinatra, like the routing is very similar to Sinatra and was really inspired basically exclusively by Sinatra. Uh, but, yeah, I think the main similarity people are seeing is, is kind of this um, focus and maybe in some people's um, opinion kind of over focus on developer happiness and productivity, maybe. Um, so that's just my takeaway on it. And maybe, you know, it's hard for me to see exactly what people are thinking because, you know, I am the creator of the framework, but that's just kind of my take on it. What's interesting to me is that when people if people do draw this comparison, they're doing it in a negative way. And yeah, honestly, that baffles me. It's like Rails was incredible for the development community. Like maybe people don't realize, but Rails kind of changed everything. And yeah, there are plenty of people I, who want to go, go ahead. And there's a big I think there's a big kind of there's this kind of this jarring realization that people have had that just because you write your project in Rails doesn't mean your code is going to be good or that it's going to be maintainable or testable or really anything. And that goes for really any web development environment. Like some people talk about <clears throat> C Sharp or ASP.NET as if it's kind of this dreamland of enterprise, big software development when really I've been in ASP.NET projects that suck horribly and are very hard to maintain and untestable and dirty and just spaghetti code everywhere. But I think there was kind of this, maybe there's kind of this group think that Ruby on Rails always equals elegant code. And now it's kind of, it's kind of, um, I feel like that's kind of shifting to where people are thinking that a lot of Ruby on Rails programmers are kind of lazy and don't write very um, maintainable code. They just kind of hack things together in there very fast. At least that's kind of like the connotation I'm getting from, you know, just like blog articles and the way people are talking about it now. And you're starting to see more of a focus on um, kind of more inter what used to be what I used to think of as more enterprise concepts like domain driven design and uh you know, more modular components and separating your domain from 
um, your other layers and hex- hexagonal architecture. And so you're kind of seeing more of a focus on that, at least in PHP right now. Yeah, I think that it doesn't matter what you adopt if your your engineering approaches are going to be not dissimilar from one technology stack to another technology stack. It's not like you're yeah. when you switch to Ruby on Rails or switch to Laravel, you're suddenly going to know uh, a bunch of new ways to engineer solutions. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like you're going to have every framework is going to have some some termination point from HTTP abstraction to your domain application. And that, that point is going to be a little different from at every framework. So that's going to look a little bit different in rails because you're going to have rails controllers. It's going to look different in Sinatra because you're just going to have routes or whatever. And, it, and, and you're going to have, you know, your Laravel implementation. But then if you're, if you're designing, designing software in a certain way where your domain is very isolated from your framework, that's basically the point at which your framework and technology differences are going to end and your domain is going to obviously be the same if it's in the same language as, you know, basically any other framework. So like I feel pretty certain that I could write a symphony application that had a domain layer that could be ported over basically one for one to Laravel. Even if I had to say like, even if I had to define interfaces for Laravel components, so even if I had to define like a validator interface or a queue interface to insulate myself from those parts of the framework, if I just in theory, if I wanted to go that far with my framework isolation, which I might not, I'm, I might not care, but um, you know, you could do it. You could definitely do it. And at that point, your controllers would be kind of your, your differentiating uh, component. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why rails is, is getting kind of that negative vibe though. Obviously it's been a very productive framework for a lot of people and it's built a lot of businesses and made a lot of money. Right. So, yeah. Um, I think that one thing that I specifically discussed with somebody while I was there is that maybe the negative connotation attached to Laravel and rails is not so much due to any technology aspects, but more the the communities and how it's possible that these communities uh, suddenly feel like, okay, I went from being a self-taught developer who um, kind of just chucked together PHP apps into, hey, I'm in this whole new world, I'm learning a lot, and thus I'm very happy and passionate because that's how we feel when we're learning a lot. Uh, Maybe there's a sense of, you know, looking back at where you come from with, with, with disdain, and maybe that translates to looking at other people with the same kind of disdain. Maybe, um, maybe more to the point is, do you think that there is a Rails way of doing things? Um, I hear this all the time. It's, it's, it's the Rails way. And do you think that there's a Laravel way? And do you think that maybe that's where some of this negative connotation is coming from? I don't think there is a Laravel way. What what I love about Laravel is you can you can do it in kind of the Rails way style, or if you want to do it more in a DDD way, there's nothing prohibiting you whatsoever, at all. You know, so yeah. and that's what's nice about it. it. It like Taylor has said, the framework grows with your skill level, and a lot of people are saying that's a bad thing. We've talked about this in some of the other podcasts. I would say that couldn't be further from the truth. If you know, it's sort of like I feel like what a lot of people are saying is. For example, if you are learning math, the only way to learn math is to immediately introduce Algebra 2, you know? And it's like, no, the way you learn is to play with blocks and count on your fingers. And then once you kind of have a grasp of that, then you can move up. And I think Laravel uh, offers this beautifully to people, yet 
there's plenty of folks who say that's just a bad way to teach people and you get them in the habit of doing bad practices. And honestly, just in my experiences, I don't see it. Do you think there's a Laravel Wade Taylor? Mm, no, not really. I mean, I think obviously the documentation is going to mm, maybe steer people towards facades to begin with, which is going to obviously create some friction with certain communities. Um, that being said, there are, you know, significant portions of the documentation dedicated to showing other ways of approaching things. And really there's no examples in the documentation of telling you exactly, um, like how to structure a whole application, um, which maybe there should be, but, um, I did, I did a little bit more of of that in my book and I want to, I'm probably eventually just going to port my, a lot of my book over to the documentation, and um, no, I don't really think about things in a Laravel way because every time I do a Laravel project, I do it a different way, it seems like. And, and I'm always kind of experimenting with different ways of architecting a Laravel project myself. So if there was a Laravel way, I th- feel like I would follow it. And since I don't, I don't think there is one <laughs> since I'm always experimenting with different ways of doing things. But that being said, let me let me just add on just because I don't feel there is a Laravel way doesn't mean that the community itself couldn't build up a certain way of doing things that kind of becomes the Laravel way. And that could be a bad way or a good way of doing things, you know, that would be kind of, um, you know, so the community might feel differently than we do. I don't know. And, and that's actually like an interesting phenomenon, right? I've talked to people who have told me what Laravel is about and I was like, Oh, that's new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Do you have an example? Yeah. Um, without getting kind of too far far down this rabbit hole, I don't want to talk about who it was or, or too much stuff right. specifically. But there were times when I've discussed with people who are in like the symphony community specifically, just people I know locally, and they're discussing how sometimes like Reddit or Hacker News or even through Twitter, somebody gets like a a snippet of some github issue in which somebody was trolling or they get uh for example there's this article called uh an introduction to laravel interfaces which kind of made its rounds in the symphony community because people are like oh i didn't know laravel was responsible (laughs) for bringing us interfaces right it was just a poorly named article the article was fine like it discussed what interfaces are and then how to implement how to use the ioc container to inject a concretion when you type into an interface that kind of thing so they're talking about how to do things in Laravel, but it was a poorly named article because it kind of gives you the idea that, oh, we believe that interfaces are a Laravel construct. So I think that there, there's some of these things that people pick up on, especially through social media resources where somebody's just trying to accentuate some feeling by by communicating these things. But that's just absurd. I mean, in that case, it's just somebody who probably doesn't know that much. You know, they're getting into Laravel for the first time. It's very possible they're, they're, that they are a beginner, and the idea of namespacing and interfaces is a very new concept to them. And that's fine. They haven't learned that yet. But in no way is that a reflection on Laravel whatsoever. You know, the exact same thing, I bring this up a lot, the exact same thing happened in the jQuery community, because I see a lot of parallels between Laravel and jQuery. And the same thing happened. Like jQuery kind of came around when people hated JavaScript. This was back in uh, 2007, I think. And back then, like 
across the board. People just hated JavaScript. And then jQuery made it easy. So as a result, a lot of people who had very little JavaScript experience. In fact, a lot of people who started using jQuery had none whatsoever. So a lot of these like concepts they were learning, they just assumed were, were part of JavaScript. And so you'd see these Stack Overflow questions asking how to accomplish something, and you'd see the response just inherently in jQuery, because that's the only way these folks had ever learned it. And it's like, once again, that's not a reflection on jQuery or whether it's a good library. It's just a reflection on that. It's appealing to newcomers, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And Laravel is really similarly positioned in that sense as jQuery, where Laravel really, I mean, across all languages and across all frameworks, is that a very good position to be someone's very first web framework? Because one, PHP is so easy to learn and easy to host and cheap to host. And then two, Laravel is going to be a very natural um, framework if someone is is looking to do php because the syntax is very readable and is very easy and the documentation is um pretty thorough and uh, less confusing i would say than some other alternatives and it is going to be you know a natural stopping point for a lot of new new web developers over the next couple of years i think um that maybe don't even have much php experience um but they start learning how to do laravel so it's going to be interesting but what's interesting is a certain level of PHP developer, maybe some of the more advanced ones, will look down on that fact. The fact that Laravel is yeah. very um, uh, welcoming to newcomers, that's somehow a bad thing. Not and that it's like, fact, no, maybe. Maybe the fact that uh, the Laravel community has a lot of newcomers. Maybe well, the same is true with PHP in general or WordPress. But again, like, why is that a bad thing? That's a good thing. That means Laravel is coded in such a way that it's very attractive to newcomers and very attractive to seasoned developers as well. These are all good things, yet somehow they get branded as, as oh, don't use Laravel. It's just, you know, the WordPress of PHP frameworks. And, and that yeah. just couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, it's a tough marketing game to play. I mean, kind of similar to the conference thing where you have a broad base of people to kind of, I don't know if sell yourself to is really the right word, but a broad base of people to, to preach this message to or to kind of, uh, gosh, I don't know. I can't find a good word for it, but just to kind of show yourself to. And it's hard to market yourself in a way to newcomers to PHP as a very um, easy way to get started building web applications and at the same time to kind of software development veterans that um, are more interested in technical things like um, how easy is it to do unit testing or how easy is it to do, um, do you care even care about things like unit testing or do you even care about things like um, solid um, software design principles? So it's tough. It's always been kind of a tough game to play, and now we're playing it kind of even more because Laravel has become more mainstream and, and more popular um, so yeah, it's very difficult. Something I think about a lot about ways to, to tweak, um, documentation to show kind of both sides of the coin. Um, even like a section of the documentation, like I mentioned before that says I'm a newcomer or I'm, I've been developing a long time and kind of cater, um, some of the documentation based on what they say to that question. One of the things that got me into Laravel was um, actually the uh, the syntax, the really simple syntax. And after a week of actually just playing around with the with the framework, uh, I uh, got to know Sean and lots of other people in the community. And pretty much just the the whole community actually helped me learn 
to look at Laravel as a, as, a, as a tool and not like as a guideline or some sort. So um, I don't know if that makes any sense or something, but to me, Laravel was really helpful for for my beginner's period. Yeah, and I think once you start writing complex applications, maybe you guys can attest to this, where um, you know you're writing a pretty sizable application, you start to realize that Laravel is not as big as you thought it was. In terms of the features, um, a lot. Of, I think when you first come into Laravel and you're writing simple applications, Laravel feels very like it's doing everything for you. It feels very huge. But I think when you write a large application, and for me, I'm, I'm obviously talking about like Snappy, the vast majority of code is not related to Laravel at all and has nothing to do with what framework it's on. And so at that point, Laravel almost seems like more of a micro framework that's just doing like my routing and HTTP and some database stuff. And a lot of other complicated logic is in Snappy. And um, I don't know, it's kind of interesting to see that transition, you know, as you grow as a developer and you're writing more complex applications, your view of the framework does kind of change over time. Yeah, Mitchell and Nick and I, we maintain this uh, app that's something like a thousand hours uh, to build. And it's just, it's just monstrous. And we started out using all the normal like Laravel conventions and tools. And as we needed uh, a more complicated abstraction or something like that, the Laravel stuff just kind of stood on the side and we brought our own stuff in. And, and so yeah. now, um, we, you know, we're definitely using the routing and uh, the queuing and, and a number of other features. But over time, we've replaced those components with, with something that actually we we had to specialize towards this application and definitely, you know, learning more about like domain driven design and the ramifications of better separating our layers of our application. I mean, these are, these concepts are not tied to domain driven design. These are just object oriented design concepts, but you know, us being self-taught and there's a limit to the amount of information that we have. And I think that, you know, no matter where you're taught, you're always going to have to, you know, come into new knowledge uh, some way or another. And that means you're always going to be changing the way you do things. But, you know, our large applications are definitely not held back by the tools we're using. Uh, this might be a good pla place to kind of talk about Active Record and, and kind of what Active Record means. Laravel comes with the eloquent Active Record implementation, which is basically the most advanced PHP Active Record available. So if you want to use Active Record, you basically use Eloquent. Um, there are other options if you want something super lightweight, but Eloquent's probably the most featureful. But there, are, you know, there are alternatives if you want a different approach to persisting your data. So the the other primary alternative is Doctrine, and Doctrine is a data mapping solution. And if I could just take a moment to discuss the differences, uh, Active Record is a tool for mapping a database record, like a, ta a record in a database table, to directly to an object. So if you have a model class called user, it probably maps to a single row in the user's table. And that's a very natural way for a lot of us to think. You go and you get your requirements and you list out the data that's in those requirements. You maybe build the schema for your database table and then you build a model to represent that data. Whereas a data mapping solution, it kind of, you write your objects first and then you kind of determine how is this external tool going to reach into your object, pick it up, and then serialize it into your database. So there's there's a couple different approaches. With Active Record, you tend to be thinking from uh, persistence and data, 
at first, whereas with doctrine, you have the kind of opportunity to think a little bit more about your objects first. And so I think it's really interesting that Laravel comes with Eloquent, and it gives you this really great tool out of the gate for whenever you want to do like these CRUD operations or basic relational stuff, but there, there's nothing stopping you from pulling in like Doctrine or, or any other tool if it's a better fit for your for your job. Kind of now that I've rambled on for a while, uh, Taylor, I know you have some some opinions about this. I'd really like to hear what your opinion is about the current Active Record debate. Should we be using your Active Record? When is it a good fit? Um, I like Active Record and I like Eloquent. Um, I have used Doctrine. You know, I've used Doctrine on a, uh, a substantial amount, so I'd say I have a decent idea of what it's like to use Doctrine or to use another entity mapper um, from another language. Um, I, but just to preface, you know, Laravel 4 especially was built with the idea that the ORM would be swappable, and that's why you have things like, for instance, that's why the Laravel user model comes out of the box with a user interface. Um, like we wouldn't have done that at all um, had we planned on people always using Eloquent. Like we would have never done that. And so that's kind of the reason there is a um, a user interface. And I think I can't remember if there's a remindable interface as well. But anyway, that's the whole reasoning behind that. And I really like um, Eloquent and Active Record just because it's so fast to develop with. And if I do want to, um, if I am working on a large project, I usually do put all my eloquent stuff between, uh, behind various um, kind of data access classes. Um, you can call them whatever you want, but a lot of people call them repositories, and even Doctrine really calls them repositories as well. And it's kind of, a, um, a, I guess, a standard name for data access or really any kind of um, remote data access, even if it's not from a database. But... Um, I usually put all my eloquent stuff behind a repository like that, especially on something like Snappy, and that's really paid off a lot because then you get a lot of um, code reuse, especially on more complex um, database operations. And so what, if I do that, I haven't really, I don't know, I, I don't really see a lot of um, negatives to that, or especially compared to Doctrine, like, or to put it another way, a lot of benefits that Doctrine would give me um, if I am doing repositories with Eloquent, like it's usually like, you know, six, one, half a dozen, the other to me, if it's Eloquent or Doctrine, because once I get it out of that repository, all I'm doing is just iterating over stuff, um, usually relationships and accessing properties and, and things like that. And I don't feel that Doctrine is always as pure as people make it out to be with the way especially with the way Doctrine has these this concept of proxy objects, which you kind of have to dig into Doctrine a little bit to get into. But um, you, when you do load a model or, or an entity, your relations sometimes are kind of these proxy magic objects that lazy load relations behind the scenes, similar to how Eloquent does. Um, so I just don't feel like there's that big of a difference, especially once you're behind a repository or some other abstraction of data access. I just don't think there's a big enough difference for me to switch. Like, I feel like I can still test everything and everything's still, you know, pretty maintainable. Um, so, yeah, I just use Eloquent mainly out of just speed and familiarity, of course. And I feel like it, it's just a very productive tool for me. It hasn't really bitten me yet. A lot of my architecture issues or design issues have never really been at the, at that level, at, at the active record or Eloquent level. They've been more overarching 
um, design design things and and just kind of component various components of the system and how they w- work together and um, and things like that. They haven't really been at the ORM level. What's interesting to me is how people split so completely down the middle on this one, and I think it's really bad. Like for example, there's there's a very vocal group that would say active record is an anti-pattern. And if you, for example, in the case of Laravel, if you're using Eloquent, then you know what? You're actually not creating good code. And I feel like that's just terrible advice. It, like, as with anything, it completely depends upon what you're building. Maybe there are situations where it would be better to use Doctrine. And I believe, Mitchell, you have some kind of Laravel Doctrine package. That would be great. But to to imply that, like, just all of the time using the active record the active record pattern is a bad practice, that's not helping anyone because you're not taking into context what we're actually talking about. Are we talking about a little little service application that like queries some APIs and returns some data? Well, that, obviously the needs for that are going to be monumentally different than if you're building some enterprise app. So like as, as with everything, it will depend, but there's a group that's saying it's always a bad thing, and I just can't agree with that. Yeah, I feel like you can write very bad code with either tool. Like I could throw a bunch of, um, you know, doctrine stuff into a controller and it would really be very similar to junking up a controller with active record. Challenge um, accepted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Like you said, I built this doctrine package and, um, kind of like the reason why I've built this, this doctrine package was because, um, it's actually uh, sort of a pain, a pain in the ass to set up, to set the whole thing up. So um, one of my main goals for this package, um, uh, I'll, I'll talk like a little bit later why I actually built this package. But, but one of the main goals was is to have it uh, as simple as Eloquent, really, so that you can just uh, add the package to your composer dependencies list and just composer update, and it'll take all your Laravel configuration and it'll just work right out of the box. So it actually really melts into Laravel. Also have all the facades and everything ready. So yeah, uh, like. Uh, there is an entity manager uh, facade ready for you to to uh, use. You don't have to use it, obviously. Like Sean said, we've been maintaining this this big uh, like monster of an application, and in that application, even in Laravel I/O or, or other apps, we've noticed that um, uh, yeah, kind of like have to some somewhat hack um, with Eloquent to achieve the same goal with 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 Doctrine. So what I mean with this is if you want to attach some tags, for instance, to a, a form post or a form thread, you have first have to save the form thread and then uh, add the tags and then save save that thing again. So um, you're kind of uh, firing multiple queries um, to achieve the same goal when using um, Doctrine. So that's one of the one of the reasons why um, I actually built the Laravel Doctrine package. When when you say multiple queries, it's not multiple queries necessarily. It's but it's like a multi multiple stage process. So you have a forum thread and you want to attach some tags to it. With Eloquent, you, you can just really quick save that thread and then use the sync method to sync the tags, and that's awesome. That works really well. The problem we have is not with making this stuff work. It's what happens when we want to do it in a very using these kind of specific patterns that separate. For example, the presentation layer uh, from the domain layer. And when we use these specific patterns, it then becomes difficult because then the thread needs to hold on to these tags and, and not do anything with them yet. Just hold on to them. And then the thread, 
fires off events, and then these tags need to be stored in the repository. So when you actually save the thread in the repository, you're actually saying, okay, thread, did you get any new tags? And if so, save those down. So this is one of those situations where you could go a number of different ways. You could have the immediate reaction, okay, well, the difficulties here come out of the fact that you're using these patterns, not the fact that you're using active record. And, and while I completely understand that, I also feel like these decisions are all engineering questions as to what problems are we trying to solve and how are we trying to solve them. So to me, it's definitely a, a situation where eloquent, like I'm, I'm writing a site for myself right now and I'm, I'm using eloquent. It's just a, it's just like a no brainer. I'm using facades, using eloquent, every single thing that, that like Laravel has to offer. And the, and the app is coming together very quickly and, and very nicely and I'm very happy with it. But there are certain cir- circumstances when I'm using um, a specific approach that Active Record starts to be not necessarily the, the, a great fit. Um, so this is one of them. This is one of those situations where the fact that you can add all these entities to the entity manager and yet not persist them until you flush and you have that unit of work design pattern, it gives me the kind of thing I need at that moment to get that done. So I definitely think that there's room for all, all these things. You just have to kind of juggle what are your concerns, uh, what are you trying to solve for. So out of, out of this kind of rambling, Taylor, do you get any any ideas from from what I'm saying, how, how you maybe feel about this specific implementation? Um, yeah, I mean, I like Doctrine, really. I think it's a cool project, and I think it's an impressive project, just the scope of what they've been able to do. And I think there are certain situations where doctrine is um, where I think how to word this. They cater to certain situations more kind of they have a more focus on certain situations. For example, like if you have a customer entity and they have an address or something like that, and it, it may be on like that database record, the customer's record but you want it to be a separate object, like an address object that is not persisted in itself, so to speak. Hopefully I'm wording that right. Yeah, like value objects. So they cater a little bit more to that kind of thing and maybe would be advantageous, you know, rather than having to write a mutator or whatever to kind of convert things into a a value object, which you could do with Eloquent. Um, Yeah, you can do that with Eloquent. It's it's not as pretty, but you can use setters and getters to do that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I do it. Yeah, I de- I definitely do that. I use the mutators and, and whatnot to create value objects. But um, even it now, is a different thing, right? Yeah, it's a different thing, and you could even say it's really like not what they were originally meant for. It just happens to work that work okay at that. Um, but like I said, I'm kind of always um, keeping my arms open towards doctrine in a sense to where like even with cashier, even with the new stuff um, is specifically written to work with people that like doctrine. So like our billable interface has just one method called save billable instance where in the eloquent, in the default implementation, you know, obviously just calls like this save, but in doctrine you would just override that one method and, and do whatever you want to do, like flush your entity manager or persist it into your energy manager, and then flush it or whatever. Um, so I'm always kind of keeping that open and always trying to make things work well with either ORM because they really are just kind of different way, diff- totally different paradigms and ways to access data. And they're so different um, that I like keeping keeping the options open in that area. 
the book Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture by Martin Fowler and other people as well. Uh, it has very early on, it discusses these patterns of active record and data mapper or data mapping. Uh, it's a, it's a great read and it can help you understand what are the differences and in what ways these tools can be used. What are the pros and cons, that sort of thing. Yeah. I feel like, um, like there was a recent Twitter conversation where I felt like it was maybe implied Although the author didn't, he said that obviously Twitter is not a place for nuanced and discussion and making kind of sub points and clarifications, but it was kind of implied that it would be maybe literally impossible to write good software with Active Record, which I felt wasn't true and kind of right. was like a cha- was kind of was like a challenge accepted type of thing where like I'm doing it, you know what I mean? And I feel like I'm writing pretty maintainable software with Active Record. So I don't, I don't want people to necessarily get the idea that like it's impossible. I just think, um, using, you have to use tools in a certain way and Active Record maybe does make it, um, easy to write, um, uh, kind of junky controllers because it is just so darn easy to use that it's very easy to start throwing it everywhere. And you do kind of have to wield that sword in a certain way. Like if you're trying to write a maintainable, maintainable application or a testable application, whatever your goals are, you do kind of have to wield it a certain way to make sure you don't cut yourself on active record or with eloquent. Um, but I do think it's possible to, to do it and to still have a very maintainable code base and a very um, clean code base. I mean, it's certainly possible because countless applications are using it. All of the, right. you know, the, the Rails apps that everyone talks about, at least until recently, everyone was saying all these amazing services that we use are all built on Rails, and I bet they're using Active Record more often than not. So obviously yeah. it's possible. Is That's why Forge it's sometimes. What's that? I said, is Forge built on Active Record? Yep. Forge is all, Forge is, you know, straight up eloquent and lots of queuing. Um, yeah, but it's all eloquent. It's all behind repositories, though. Um, like there's server and site and other repositories that manage all that data access. So, um, you know, various domain layer things use those repositories for for code reuse and to simplify that data access and it is to keep things nice and uh, nice and testable because I can mock repositories very easily. Yeah, I'd love to see the source code for that because that's kind of a beast. Like you're doing some crazy stuff in there. So how yeah. is Forge going? Yeah, it's going pretty well. I think people um, people seem to be liking it. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from people who um, were scared to move from like a, a shared hosting, kind of a cheap shared hosting account to a of their own private server. There's been a lot of people like that. Um, there's quite a quite a few um, people that kind of do work for clients, like freelancers, I guess. And so that was kind of the the drive behind that latest feature, which even Sean himself requested of being able to um, manage multiple credentials per provider, because like a lot of um, freelancers are kind of independent web people. They like to have their clients sign up for their own digital ocean account. And then um, they can use forge to create servers on that account. That way it's a little easier for them since um, the client is built by digital ocean and there's no bandwidth concerns of, you know, running up um, their bill or whatever. But people seem to really like it. I think it's made it really easy to get um, a modern PHP environment for people at a really affordable price since um, places like DigitalOcean and, and Linode are so affordable. And then plus only $10 for Forge to, to do push to deploy, which other push to deploy services 
are more than $10 a month just for push to deploy. So I think it's a pretty good value for people um, to get a pretty nice setup going at an at affordable cost. Hey, Taylor, really quick, um, can you just summarize Forge for anybody who might not have been at Laracon or maybe didn't see all the, the details online? Yeah, so Forge is a... Um, it works with DigitalOcean, Linode, Rackspace, and Amazon, which all provide kind of blank Ubuntu servers. And then Forge installs everything you need, like PHP. Um, it uses a web server called Nginx, which is like an alternative to Apache, which you might more people are probably used to. Um, it installs, and then all the other goodies that kind of Laravel uses that maybe your shared hosting didn't have. So things like Memcached and Redis and uh, Beanstalk queues and various PHP extensions that aren't always available. And, of course, on top of that, you maintain full control of the, your own virtual server so you can um, log in with your terminal and basically do whatever you want. And you have full database access, of course, which a lot of times you might not get with uh, other shared hosting or platform-as-a-service things. And it's it's very affordable in that way since we aren't maintaining all our own hardware and all our own infrastructure is very affordable for us, so we can make the price um, pretty low and get people um, into a nice server at a very low cost. And the vision for Forge, which I mentioned at Laracon, and um, related to Forge, uh, something called Laravel Homestead, which is a kind of a prepackaged Vagrant box, which matches basically the Forge environment, is we want your development experience to be kind of um, we were to remove all the roadblocks from your development experience. So one big roadblock was um, like MAMP or WAMP and getting Encrypt working and getting your local development environment working without totally hosing like your, your main computer that you might use to store like your family photos on and your, your music on and kind of not mixing those two things. So Homestead um, gives you a nice kind of turnkey solution to having a nice virtual box which, of course, is kind of like a little computer that runs inside your computer and keeps everything nice and isolated. Um, so that's all documented. And then Forge is kind of the other end of the spectrum for deploying your application out onto the into the wild. So and um, you get all the same goodies that you did with Homestead. And it's very easy to use push to deploy. So when you push code to your GitHub, things are automatically updated on your server. Um, so it's kind of an end-to-end development solution with Homestead and then the framework itself and then Forge. Yeah, so what's cool is that your homestead environment will be very, very similar to your Forge environment, right? Yeah, that's how basically yeah. identical, yeah. Yeah, so that's so nice. I've learned from running Laracast, these questions pop up all the time. Like Taylor mentioned Encrypt. You wouldn't believe how many comments I get about Encrypt because people are trying to use uh, a version of MAMP. I think MAMP has fixed that now, but older versions of MAMP didn't have that installed, so they would have no idea what to do. And that's what's yeah. nice about MAMP is it kind of tucks away all of that complexity. But then as soon as you want to install an extension or, or even like do something like install Beanstalk, well, at that point, it just kind of falls apart and you have absolutely no idea what to do. So then people want to switch over to something like Vagrant, but I can easily see how Vagrant can be overwhelming to somebody who, who has really never dealt with this stuff. If you're switching from MAMP to Vagrant, that can be a little overwhelming, okay. right? So it's nice that Homestead, it really turns this into like two or three clicks and you're done. You don't have to worry about all of the complexity with how to install all of this stuff. You can get going right away, which is really nice. So, Taylor, uh, is uh, our Forge's service being managed by Forge itself? 
Yeah, Forge's servers were created by Forge, and but they're no longer like in the Forge system. Um, but originally, I built all five. It runs on five servers, which is a little overpowered right now. But there's a web balance, there's a node balancer, there's two web servers, uh, one database server, and two workers. One worker just does deployments, and the other worker does all the other various kind of things like setting up subdomains and all that. Um, so that way, it keeps the deployments kind of kind of fast. But yep, Forge was built by Forge, which is pretty interesting and pretty cool actually. It always yeah, blows I, my mind when you learn about that stuff. Like, how is that yeah. possible? But it makes sense, but it still yeah. blows my mind. Another interesting thing about Forge and Homestead is, like, I feel like for some people, um, it's tough to understand why do something like Homestead or why do something like Forge because some people are just already very technical and very smart, and they they know how to do all that thing, those things themselves. So, um you know, there's going to be a small group of people who are like, why would you do anything like this? But I think the goal is, like I said a while back in the podcast, for a lot of people, Laravel is going to be their first thing, and it's going to be their first web development thing. And um, even if they've been doing PHP for a year or two, they maybe still are not really comfortable with some of these things. Um, so this is a very way to just a very good way to remove a lot of roadblocks for people's. I always, I like to think of it as people's creativity. So like Laravel. Um, for me, originally was a way to launch my side business ideas very quickly. And still, I think of it as kind of the perfect framework for doing something like that, even though it's it's good for, you know, much larger projects, too. But I still try to think about just that person that has that idea and to turn that spark of an idea into a full-fledged application and making that as easy as possible is still a very big goal in my mind. Um, for people to kind of and to get all the roadblocks out of the way so that they can just focus on building something cool and not worrying about, you know, configuring their laptop with MAMP and encrypt and stuff. What's the best way to get that feedback to you about Forge, Tyler? Uh, there is like a little widget at the bottom of Forge that says help. And right there you can just email. There's like a little email form built into the widget. And that will go to my uh, that emails me. I, I get it on my iPhone even. So. Uh, that's a really quick way to get in touch with me. I may not always um, get back to it like instantly. It depends, you know, if I'm working, obviously I'm not going to get back to it until that night. And um, right, there was a lot of, there was a lot of emails like in those first few days that kind of got backlogged. And now I don't get as many. I only get, you know, a few a day um, on Forge. But yep, that little widget is really the best way to get in touch with me about Forge. And of course, Twitter, I still, you know, respond on Twitter pretty frequently. You're not a Twitter quitter. <laughs> Twitter quitter. I've never heard that. Uh, that was from uh, what was his name? Anyway, who cares? Um, <laughs> <laughs> who cares about that? Who cares I about need that? To know. No, he was he, uh, Conan O'Brien. Sorry. Oh. Um, no. So I have like kind of one more topic that I'd like to discuss briefly w- with you, but we don't have a whole lot of time. So if there's anything you guys would like to talk about, we'll just forget about mine and talk about yours. So le- what do you think? Before I leave the Forge thing, someone did ask on Laravel like a roadmap for Forge. And um, just a real quick, a couple of things that are on my mind there are like uh, deployment feedback so that you get like the logs for your deployment. Um, and I'm thinking about adding like node balancing, a really easy node balancing thing into Forge and maybe a couple other of those like one click apps. So that's kind of some Forge roadmap stuff. Are you going to add that uh, copy button for um, the signatures? <laughs> yeah, I need that for the keys or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that will kind of be tied in <laughs> with like the, the the node balancing stuff because you'll need like a really easy way to clone a server, basically like exactly and clone keys and stuff. So I think that will all kind of all get rolled into one thing. 
<laughs> Man, this is the worst project ever for people proposing ideas to you. I can't imagine <laughs> how many like specific use cases you get presented. Yeah, the worst has been like people originally it was like we want Bitbucket, and now it's like yeah. we want GitLab, and then it's like we want Beanstalk. It's like the, all the little Git. Um, <laughs> the truth is, nobody actually uses those. I know, like, it's crazy. I thought when I added Beanstalk, it was like, okay, that that's the end of that debate because Beanstalk is free private hosting. It's like, done, you know, there's, what else? But then it's like, no, there's just a whole deluge of other of other services. Okay, so um, the last topic I have is, have you guys been watching the DHH is TDD dead thing? I watch every single one of them. <laughs> I haven't I, watched I any it. of them. Oh, okay. What? Oh, <laughs> no, I watch I'm every so one of them. So you're caught up. You're You're up to four. Uh, they did four today. I've only gotten through the first ten minutes before the podcast started. Okay. All right. So do you have any opinions about the whole debate, Jeffrey? I think I wish they had some more people represented. Like, they're, they're doing a really good job of, of being nice to each other. Of course, you don't want – like, everyone wanted to see a battle, right? And, of course, that's just not what they're in the business of doing. But I feel like there are some sides in this debate that just aren't being represented whatsoever. For example, there's there's a huge group of TDDers who who subscribe to like the mawkish style of doing TDD. There's nobody represented there in the debates. I think um, that's fair. I think that maybe this is like an isolated thing. But what I would love to see, for example, is more people like Martin Fowler and Kent Beck, for example, discuss a lot more of these kind of ideas in the future. Right, and I I, I don't know how many more they have planned. I think they're doing it maybe like a six part series. But no, what's really been most useful to me is to learn that, like, not everyone agrees on this stuff. And I think that was kind of the primary goal with DHH is there was this there was this world that said, unless you do TDD, you are not a professional developer. You know, and it's like there's huge advantage. I've written a book on testing. I'm I'm a big fan of it, but I'm not a fan of just telling people if you don't do this, you're an idiot. And it's it's the exact same argument with the active record discussion that we already had. You can't just tell people you either do this or you're not a professional developer, right? So I think it's been really insightful for everyone listening on these debates to learn that, no, like everyone has their different way of doing it. Some people don't write a single line of production code until they have their tests. So they end up in these situations where they have four times as many tests as they do production code. That makes them sleep at night. Fine. If you want to do that, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that's the only way to code these applications. It's certainly not the way I do it. But yeah, I, I've enjoyed every one of them. It strikes me, it yeah. Um, it strikes me how Kent and Martin have pre kind of they don't have to think about their responses to questions. They don't have to think about all these things. And I, I get this very strong feeling of there is so much experience behind what they're saying. Right. Um, where DHH, you know, he has a lot of experience developing, um, but it doesn't seem like he has subscribed like so wholeheartedly to this sort of method. So I feel like DHH kind of has more of this, like he's having like learner problems, like the kind of problems I have when I, when I try to do TDD and the kind of flaws that I run into, I feel like Kent and Martin maybe have a lot more experience doing this kind of thing. And so they get, they get it. They've worked through some of these humps a little bit more. Uh, that That's kind of the impression I get it, is that kind of where you're coming from, Mitchell? Um, to me, what it kind of sounds like, and I'm going to be like, I'm just going to say this, but um, what it kind of sounds like is that 
uh, THH read the documentation on TDD, tried it once or twice, and then failed at it, and now he's making a big statement. That's probably just me. Do you feel like... But we know that's not the case. Yeah, but do you feel like TDD is, like, the right approach? And and when? Like Ken Beck uh, constantly says, it really depends. Because it does really depend on the project, really. Does it depend on the project or the kind of code you're writing? Because that's what Ken seems saying, right? Does it really depend on the project and how often? Like, are you spiking and stabilizing? Okay, so we used this term spike and stabilize like in a a previous episode. So the idea is you write a whole bunch of code and you get it working and then you go and fill it with tests, right? Stuff like that. Um, And what I pull away from Kent's discussion, part of the discussion, is that he's doing TDD more often than not. And there are certain times when TDD really makes sense to him and certain times when it doesn't. Is that where you're coming away with, Jeffrey? Yeah. Uh, the the issue is TDD is great for some specific things. So very, very often when you have, when I feed it this data, I expect that data in return. It's perfect for that. But then you have these other situations where it just doesn't seem as fluid, especially when you're building web applications and people are trying to unit test controllers and stuff like that. At that point, it gets very kind of muddy, especially if you're going to take a mockist approach to it where you want to unit test your controller so everything just gets mocked out and you look at your test code and you have no idea what it's doing because you have so many different mocks. This mock should receive that and return that. And then sometimes you you end up in these scenarios where your mock returns another mock, which you then feed into something else. And very quickly, these tests just get kind of overwhelming. And then when you're taking that approach, your tests are very dependent upon the the structure of, in this case, the controller that you're testing. So that's where I, I can completely agree, like taking this approach that you have to unit test everything may not necessarily lead to better design because some things maybe just aren't as uh, welcoming to that style of testing. From my experience, if I'm testing a controller, sure, you can unit test it. If you want to mock out the DB, fine. If you want to mock out anything else, fine. But are you getting a huge advantage from doing that versus doing or versus treating it as a functional test? And for me, a functional test is good. What I've been doing is creating stubs uh, more often right, right now for, for like the last couple of weeks is uh, instead of just creating a mock, uh, create a stub for uh, a specific kind of situation and then just handle everything in there. I think Uncle Bob has been um, preaching that a little bit. Yeah, that's an interesting way to go about it. So there's a lot of different types of, of dummy objects. or You can mock, you can stub. There's a lot of different approaches to creating objects that will fit into a box and solve that kind of isolation problem for you and the book uh, growing object oriented software with tests is a really great way to learn about the different types of objects you can create to assist in testing because mocks are definitely not the end all be all there's a lot of, of ways to approach that problem so um, i've been reading that book and it's really helped me get some perspective i'd like to ask you taylor taylor is there a chance that you would like to implement tdd more in your workflow or is that something you're just not interested in is it something you'd like to grow into a little bit more or how do you feel about that Mm, really not really i mean not really to be honest (laughs) um like i just feel like i'm i don't know it's hard to say this without it's going to come across very arrogant and people are going to hate me online but i feel like i'm coding in a test first mindset all the time in a way so that like I'm always thinking to myself about very test first concepts in terms of my design, even though I'm not always writing the test first um, because I just don't want to. And I find that boring and 
I, I really just code for my own enjoyment, especially in my free time. So like I just do, I'm coding to make myself happy basically. And, um, so I do write the test after, even though that still sucks and that's probably even more boring, but it's just the way I do things. And, um, but I do think with a very test first mindset and am I going to be able to test this? And I usually know immediately if something's going to be testable or not testable. Um, based on how I'm doing things. And maybe that's part of why, like, I don't know if it's just kind of related to the fact that I always, like, am sketching out the API first, like, really concretely and how I'm going to use things and then just making it work and, and making it work in a testable fashion. But, yeah, the short answer is no, not really. Like, I feel pretty happy with the way um, I'm coding things, and that's just kind of how I feel at this point, I guess. Taylor, would you say that... Focusing on learning TDD and, and actually doing it is a beneficial thing. And, and I'm sorry, this is the last question that we've got to wrap it up. But would you say that pursuing it, at least until the point of where you kind of have it all figured out, is worth doing? Yeah, I think it's worth doing. Like, I think it's always worth exploring a concept that you haven't done. So, like, I definitely think it's worth pursuing and maybe you really love it and you stick with it and that's awesome. And it, it's just a flow that works for you and helps you write um, great stuff. And then if you try it and you, um, you don't like it or you find another way that you kind of prefer, then you can just, you know, leave it aside, but at least you've tried it and at least you've experienced what TDD is about so that at the very least you can have, um, um, you know, good conversation with other, other developers and kind of know where they're coming from and what it's like to code in TDD and, and, you know, try it for yourself. And just because you try it, um, once or, or twice or on a, a project and you don't like it doesn't mean you can never do it again. Like even for me, when I say that I'm not interested in doing it, I mean like right now, uh, you know, in a couple of years from now, maybe I pick it up again and it's something that really works for something I'm working on and it's awesome. So, um, but yeah, definitely you should try anything, you know, you should never just um, discount something or not do something without trying it. I mean, that goes for anything in life really. What I would say on that is, I do not do 100% TDD, but I sometimes do. But even if you learn it and you never actually practice it, I know from my experiences, I became a significantly better developer when I started thinking in that mindset. Because especially to newcomers, like these these ideas of dependency injection, we learn and we're told that these are good practices. But it's very possible if you're just getting into this stuff, you have no idea why that's the case. Why is it better to inject uh, this object, or why is it better to code to an interface? And many times when you're doing TDD, you get these answers. You don't even have to be told why. You will see for yourself. And that's obviously the best way to learn any of these things is to fall into these traps and figure out, oh, if I had done it this way, then it would have been a lot easier to do this and that. So there's, in my opinion, zero things, or in my opinion, there's no way you could not possibly come out the other end a better developer, even if you don't practice it every day. Yeah. And I'm kind of learning that, like, there's certain things, like, you just don't talk about on Twitter, and TDD is almost becoming one of those things lately because of just, you know, people are very passionate about it. And, like, um, uh, there was an Uncle Bob debate is, do you have to do TDD to be a professional developer? And there's various other topics like that online, you know, politics and, and religion and even, like, diet and stuff like that. So yeah. um, it's a very – Although one of my favorite – Although one of my favorite quotes is the fact that you and I disagree so much is exactly why we should be talking. You know, maybe yeah. not on Twitter, maybe not on Twitter, but the fact that people really disagree, it, it does make sense to 
to keep talking to people yeah. who have different viewpoints than you. It's not a hangout, yeah, but but definitely something to try. And I mean, obviously, it works very well for a lot of people, and very smart people feel passionate about it. And it's a very it's a very cool way to do software. I mean, you know, the whole red green refactor concept, and especially the way it plays in with uh, pair programming. You know, TDD is a really cool thing for for working with another person and having them write the test and then the other person writes the implementation. TDD really lends itself very well to that kind of model, too. Okay, I think that's all the time we have uh, for today. But if you'd like to discuss this with us further, come to the Laravel Off-Topic channel on Freenode. Uh, it's irc.freenode.net, and the channel is Laravel-Off-Topic. That's where we discuss uh, programming and engineering separate from the Laravel framework and supporting that, which, of course, you can find in the regular Laravel IRC channel on Freenode. So, wow. thanks. I didn't know Laravel Off-Topic was like public discussion now. I was just about to say, <laughs> I linked to it on Laracast one day and got slammed for it. So I'm glad <laughs> I'm no longer responsible for this. It's all Jeffrey's fault. <laughs> okay, so I'm going Not to anymore. move everything here except for the part where Jeffrey talks about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just the important no, thing to know is Laravel Off Topic is where we don't support Laravel the framework, yeah. uh, where we only talk about our personal selves and other ideas uh, about yeah. engineering or other things. So don't don't go in there expecting to get your questions answered because we have a very specific no Laravel support policy in that channel. But we do talk yeah. a lot about development in other languages and other ideas. Also, cat, I'm actually, I have cat pictures, loads of them there. <laughs> I'm actually all for having a lot of people in off-topic. Like, I think that'd be cool. It's really strange having, like, presenting your personal self a little bit more when there's hundreds of people lurking. Uh, yeah. You think that you're talking to the people who are talking to you, but you're actually, like, broadcasting to this massive group of people. But, you know, it's our lives on the Internet, I guess. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you all so much for, for showing up and uh, chatting today. And until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. All right, see you guys.